Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. This is episode number 181 of the show, and it's part number 15 of our very long series called Instant Replay, where we're looking back on some of my favorite episodes, some of your favorite episodes, and remembering some of the important things that we've learned on this three-year journey together. We're putting together a top 20 list. So we've got five more. And I'm wondering how in the world I could possibly squeeze in all of the episodes I want to. But I can only pick 20. So I will do my best. But today, we're looking back on a conversation I had with Bart Ehrman, um, one of the most well-known Bible scholars in the universe, one of the most controversial ones (laughs) as well. Um, especially in the church world. Uh, Bart used to be an evangelical pastor. And uh, he went to Moody, I think, Moody Bible Institute. And uh, then he started to ask some questions. (laughs) We all know how that goes around here, right? He asked some questions about God and, uh, in particular, some of the evil in the world. And uh, he didn't really, he didn't come to any big conclusions other than, I don't believe what I used to believe anymore. And uh, now he identifies as an atheist slash agnostic. Uh, who is still doing amazingly good work in the world of biblical scholarship. And uh, what I love about him is he has no agenda to protect, right? So he can like literally discover something and just share it without being afraid of losing his job or without being afraid of being cast out of a tribe because he's already left the tribe, right? So he's got no tribe to be cast out of. So he can just discover something, not have to put any kind of spin on it, and just share what he finds. And I find his work so enriching for my faith. A lot of people told me, oh, when you start reading Bart Ehrman, you're going to lose your faith. No, his stuff has actually strengthened my faith. It's actually made me love the Bible even more than I loved it before. Uh, it's so, so good. And I was nervous. I was so nervous to talk to this man <laughs> in this episode. Uh, my my hands were shaking. My palms were sweating. But by the end, uh, we were having a really good time. And uh, all these months later, I'll actually still interact through uh, email. And I have the honor of being on his social media team as a volunteer. So I make some images for his blog every week. They go out on Twitter and Facebook and all the places. So uh, I love this guy and I love his work. And uh, I'm excited to share this episode with you uh, one more time. If you already heard it before, listen again if you haven't heard it. Uh, Like I said the first time, buckle up (laughs) because you're in for a ride as we talk about a whole lot of uh, really interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, In the show notes today, I'll put all of his links to some of his books, my favorite of his books. He's written a lot of books, uh, but I'll put some of my favorites in the show notes. Also in there is Patreon and Buy Me Coffee, two places to go to support the show. So if this has encouraged you, inspired you, challenged you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, consider going over there to sign up for a monthly tier on Patreon or a one-time uh, gift or contribution you can make as well on uh, Buy Me Coffee. On Patreon, every tier gets a reward. So early access to vlog posts, early access to podcast episodes. We have a Marco Polo video group. Uh, you can join me in a podcast recording and hang out with me and the guests. There's so many options to choose from. Uh, it starts at $3 a month and goes up to like $100 a month depending on what you want to give, what you're able to give. 
all the different things. So check it out. It's in the show notes. Also in there is our YouTube channel as well, uh, which is where I have a weekly vlog that I send out. Uh, Subscribe to it if you would. Give some videos likes. Give them dislikes. Get some action going on on the vlog (laughs) if you would. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And our special music today is from my friend DJ KDOT. Uh, We used to work together at Apple. She's got a beautiful soul. Uh, She's extremely gifted, talented, doing incredible things in the world. And so head over to Spotify, Apple Music, listen to her music, download it, share it, pass it around, do all the things. So all that to say, I'm going to be quiet. This is episode number 181, uh, part 15 of Instant Replay, my conversation with the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Bart Ehrman. Enjoy. There's something so special about you and me, babe You got me, you got me, you got me Feeling fine So just say the words cause you know what it means to me, babe When you got me, you got me, you got me Feeling right Your eyes, your eyes Hypnotize me, baby Oh, your eyes, oh, your eyes Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this is the episode you have been waiting for because today we're talking to the legendary Bart Ehrman to chat about all sorts of exciting things. And so, Bart, my friend, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to talk to you. But I, I hope I'm not legendary the way you know, like Moses is. <laughs> <laughs> You're up there. You're almost there. I mean, no, I mean, like you know, I really do exist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. You're very welcome. So uh, truth be told, I have a bazillion uh, questions for you. And I have a whole shelf of uh, Bartram and books that are highlighted, dog-eared, sticky notes, all the things. But uh, I'm going to do my best to keep my questions at least somewhat focused on your book, uh, Lost Christianities, because I really want to pick your brain about the diversity of our early Christianity. But before we get into all of that, for uh, our listeners who maybe aren't as obsessed with your work as I am, uh, talk to us a little bit about who you are, what you do, a little bit of your journey. Uh, right. So I'm a professor uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. I um, I teach in the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, I've been here since I've teach, taught here since 1988. I started teaching at Rutgers in, in 1984. And so I've been I've been teaching uh, my courses, which are mainly on New Testament and early Christianity for uh, well over 30 years now. Um and so my, my expertise is on, um, my PhD is actually in New Testament studies, um, but I, a lot of my research these days is more on second and third century Christianity. Uh, and so I'm kind of, my expertise spans from Jesus up to the Emperor Constantine, basically. Mm. And I approach all of this from a historical point of view, not from a uh, religious point of view. So not a devotional point of view, but from more of a historical and literary point of view. Sure. So personal question for you, um, how do you, identify today in regards to faith? Because I, I hate labels, but I hear some people no, insist yeah. that you're an atheist. Some people insist you're agnostic. Your Twitter bio kind of throws us all for a loop and says agnostic atheist. So 
maybe clear up some of the discrepancy. Uh, what are your some of your personal thoughts about the idea of God? Uh, no, so I, you know, I started out as a very strong evangelical Christian. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was a fundamentalist. I went to Moody Bible Institute after high school, and I was like, I was really <laughs> as fundamentalist as you can get. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, but then, um, you know, I when I went to when I, when I went to graduate school and started studying this stuff pretty seriously, I I decided the Bible was not inerrant, <laughs> and uh, so I, but I remained a Christian for a very long time. It was about 25 years ago or so, I don't know, uh, when I left Christianity uh, altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself a humanist uh, in positive terms because I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan of the human race, <laughs> parts of it, <laughs> with the potential of it anyway. <laughs> and, um, but in terms of the negatives, uh, I consider myself both an atheist and an agnostic. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- when I left the faith, I had the I had the view that almost everybody seems to have, which is that those are two degrees of the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. That you got so some people are, are uh, who who don't believe in God, but they're too wimpy to say so, <laughs> so they <laughs> call themselves agnostic to kind of cover the bases. Right. And people who are who are really arrogant who say, "I know there's no God, no, there ain't." And so, like you know, the, and and now I don't see it that way. I think agnosticism is a statement about what you know about mm-hmm. the world. And I, you know, if somebody were to ask me, do you know that there's not a superior being in charge of this whole thing? I said, no, how would I know? <laughs> I'm just I'm a peon like everyone else. I just trying know. to make it through this life, right? <laughs> so, so, but if you ask me, do I believe that there's a superior God, like somebody who's in, like involved in this world? I said, no, absolutely not. I don't believe that. Yeah. So I think atheism is about belief and agnosticism is about knowledge. And I do try to keep those two things distinct. That makes sense. Was that a gradual move for you? Was it like a... Did it happen like a, was it a quick decision for you? Was it something that happened over time? To, to leave the faith, you mean? Yeah, to like leave from evangelicalism to where oh, you are no, now? No, it's a very long process because gotcha. I, uh, I had, uh, as a, as a fundamentalist Christian, I was convinced that the Bible had no mistakes of any kind whatsoever. Yeah. And I could reconcile anything. There's people, people can if they want to. Right. And so I could do that. I was pretty good at that. Sure. But I finally got convinced that they're, they're actually, I just, you know, there are mistakes in the Bible. I, once mm-hmm. I realized that, I moved toward a more liberal form of Christianity, which I still thought the Bible was God speaking to people and mm-hmm. the Christ was still representative of God. And it wasn't really until, as I was saying, 25, it might have been 30 years ago, not 25 years ago, where I said, um, you know, I just got to a point where I didn't believe that there's a God who's in control of this world. I mean, look around. I mean, really? Uh, with all the suffering in this world, it's just unbelievable how much suffering there is. And I just thought, you know, it, you know, it's nice for me to say that God answers my prayers, you know, like, oh, I got the job, you know, or, oh, I got the parking space. You know, it's like, oh, God, thank you, God. You right, know, it's like right. you know, someone else just got killed in a car wreck and yeah. uh, let alone the eight children who just died of starvation yeah. minute after minute, uh, day after, for, you know, many, many <laughs> millennia. Sure. Uh, so I just got, you know, I just don't believe it anymore. So your book, uh, Lost Christianities, uh, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you that in seminary, uh, my seminary, which was a, a very evangelical school, certainly the more conservative side of theology, uh, your work was was outlawed, right? Like it's off limits. It's it's not acceptable. Uh, I was told to stay away from it. But once I began deconstructing, uh, like rethinking my faith kind of towards the end of my seminary career, I went out and of course did everything they told me not to do. And I started by buying a whole lot of your your books um, and your textbooks, which are very expensive, but I found them cheap. I found them, I found them used, which is helpful. But yeah, as I make my way through your books, uh, what continues to fascinate me is the, the diversity that seems to have existed within early Christianity, the beliefs, the theology, the different texts, and your work really magnifies that. 
Because for me, that's like a totally new idea. When I picked up your book and I saw lost Christianities, plural, I immediately thought to myself, wait a minute, like there's, there's more than one. I thought there's only one because I was brought up, you know, probably like you evangelical to think that, you know, Orthodox Christianity was handed to Jesus in the manger. He then gave it to the apostles, the bishops, or the priests, or the pastors, and everybody else is wrong. And so maybe like, maybe you could kick off the discussion and talk to us about like the glaring problems with thinking about history in that context and maybe a little bit about the diversity that existed back when this, when this all began. Yeah. So no, it's uh, I know I, that's definitely what I thought too. <laughs> and in fact, it wasn't just that there was only one, you know, there was an Orthodox Christianity. The Orthodox Christianity was my Christianity. Right. <laughs> so like if you were, if you were a Roman Catholic, sorry, you're not a Christian. You know? Don't it's mess with Orthodox. my Christianity. Right? Mormons. Oh my God. No, you're not a Christian. What are you thinking? Yeah. And so, so like, you know, so it's, and I've known, I've known people who've said, uh, you cannot be saved unless you're baptized in my church, mm. not my denomination, my church. Yes, <laughs> like, right. Whoa, okay. <laughs> my so, building right here. <laughs> so, the, um, so the reality is that Christianity today is remarkably diverse. Uh, you get Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses mm. and Presbyterians, Episcopalians and Methodists. You get all this, and, and they believe very different things, and they mm. have very different practices. And, and, but part of the point of this book lost christianities is that the wide the wide diversity today pales in comparison with what it was in the second and third centuries Mm. before we had creeds you know or before you had like uh an organization of the church that was where you had leaders who were making sure everything was going the same way and you're like Mm. and even when they had the leaders making sure they were going the same way they didn't go the same way but but at least they brought a lot of the the uh, diversity under control Mm. And so the book is about how you have these different groups of uh, early Christians, um, all of whom thought that they were uh, true followers of Jesus, who thought that they had the truth, mm-hmm. um, who had who had writings by apostles that showed they had the truth. Mm-hmm. And there were and they were all at odds with each other. People claim Christians and people calling themselves Christian who said all sorts of things that today most Christians would say that ain't Christian. <laughs> you know, but you know, we have people saying that there were two gods, like literally that literally the Old Testament God was different from the New Testament God. Not just kind of like kind of different, but no, really a different God. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that the New Testament God was to save you from the Old Testament God. Or people who said that there were 36 gods or 365 mm-hmm. gods. Or people who would say uh, Christ was a, he was a, he was a, he was God on earth. So since he was God, he wasn't really human. Mm-hmm. Or no, no, he was a human and he wasn't really God. Or just almost any doctrine you can think of, people had different views of, often contradictory views, and they all claimed to be followers of Jesus. And so you say, well, why didn't they just read the New Testament and figure it out? <laughs> there wasn't right there the New black and white, right? <laughs> the New Testament emerged out of these conflicts. And so that's yeah. what my book is about, is how the New Testament emerged out of these conflicts so that people could say, yeah, this, this is what it means to be Christian. So if there's all these different branches, all these different camps in early Christianity, how did the Orthodox camp become the strongest one? Because even like for myself, I mean, when I started to go to start exploring things. I got some messages like in my Facebook messenger from concerned, you know, professors and fellow students that, you know, you're straying from Orthodox Christianity was the big, was the big word that was thrown at me. So like, how did that become so strong 
and it'll, yeah. all these other ones got pushed to the side. Yeah, well, it's a it's a long story, and it's it's a it's a complicated story. Mm-hmm. Um, but the so the deal is you in let, let me put it like so the view that you outlined that you know Jesus got this in the cradle and <laughs> uh, you know passed it on to his disciples and passed it down to the leaders of the churches that view um, has has been prominent for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. It was it was most effectively uh, set forth by the father of church history, Eusebius, in the early fourth century, who wrote a 10 volume book called The History of the Church, or sometimes called The Ecclesiastical History, where he explained that, yeah, he explained, look, Christianity's always been one thing. Jesus held it, his apostles held it, the leaders of the churches held it. Every now and then, some person would come along and mess it up. You know, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be arrogant or they'd be sinful or they'd be inspired by the devil. And they'd come up with some crazy idea. <laughs> they'd get a bunch of followers and they'd say they were the original form. But in fact, they were always an offshoot. They were a minor offshoot. And so orthodoxy was understood always to be by Eusebius to be primary is first mm. and it was always the majority view so that when Eusebius talks about these various heretical groups mm-hmm. the heretics are always secondary and uh, corruptors of the truth secondary mm. corruptors of the truth and so the idea is you got this big thing orthodoxy goes all the way back then you get these offshoots every now and then they're, they're pestiferous and sometimes a pain in the neck but you know <laughs> they're just they're not really Christian. And so uh, Eusebius wrote that. And after that, just about everybody agreed. Yeah, that's how it happened. And Mm -hmm. so it it was that way until the early 20th century, when um, scholars started realizing that, in fact, every time you discover a new document from early Christianity, like a a, a document that claims to be a Christian document, Mm -hmm. it has views that are not what you find in Orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just like one or two. It's like every time you find one of these documents, it's something (laughs) else. It's like, (laughs) <laughs> well, why why aren't you finding things that are like i mean and so people they came to the view that in fact in different parts of the roman empire where you had mm-hmm. christianity in different parts you had different kinds of christianity in the second mm-hmm. and third century uh and so now scholars of course trace it back to the first century the diversity to the time of the new testament and so that's the view now is that you have, so you have all these things and see so your question sorry about that that's the no, background right, <laughs> so, sure <laughs> so, it needs so background question, it's a big question <laughs> so the question is well, how did orthodoxy succeed yeah and why, why this one so the the person if you're you know if people listening to this are interested the 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 um the book that really made the big difference was written in 1934 by a guy named walter bauer b-a-u-e-r and it was called orthodoxy and heresy in earliest christianity um and he he showed this he showed that in antioch he was a different kind of christianity than the egypt as far back as you can trace in asia minor had different kinds of christianity rome mm-hmm. had different, and and he, he showed this um uh, and he argued that the form of Christianity that ended up succeeding and establishing itself as orthodox, meaning mm-hmm. that it had the right view, orthodoxy literally means the right view. Uh, he argued that the uh, group that did that, that, uh, that had the right view was the group located in Rome. Uh, Rome was the largest church uh, in the empire, it was the largest city in the empire. It also had the largest church in the empire. They had more money than any other church. They had administrative know-how that had been trickled down from the administration to Rome. And so, and they began asserting their influence already in the first century. And they used their money and their know-how and their influence to spread their form of Christianity and make sure the right bishop was elected. 
Mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that the bishop had the right views. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you're choosing justices for the Supreme Court, right? you, <laughs> you choose the one who's got your views because that's right. the right view. And then, then you do that enough and pretty soon you got the Supreme Court. <laughs> right, pack it. <laughs> pack it. Yep. So they pack, they pack the church. <laughs> yeah. Can you then talk to us about like where, where does the term like Gnostic fit into all of that? Like how big, how big was that? in the arena that we're talking about because as i've been reading like i've been reading your stuff elaine pagels karen king david brackey like everybody seems to talk about the gnostics and gnosticism in a different way like some people oh. seem to say it was a big camp and underneath were like different branches other people say yeah. it was a small branch amongst other smaller branches I think yeah. it's maybe Karen King who says just get rid of the term Gnostic altogether. Somebody's saying yeah. that. So like maybe help us have a little bit of clarity around where that discussion fits. Yeah, in. right. It's, it, it's a complicated business. Yeah. So um, the term the term Gnostic um, literally is means somebody who knows. Mm -hmm. So it comes from the same word agnostic comes from an agnostic doesn't know and a Gnostic does know. <laughs> and so there were a uh, there were a group of religions that emphasized the importance of secret knowledge for salvation. Mm -hmm. Um, some, some of these groups are not even Christian groups. They, they, Jesus doesn't figure into them, but a lot of them, the ones we know about, most of them are Christian where Jesus Christ is the one who reveals this secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge in most of these systems tends to be uh, knowledge that can help you understand um, yourself. As one church father put it, you're, it's knowledge about who you are, where you came from, how you got here and how you can return. And so the idea is that some of us, um, some of us have a spark of divinity within us and it's trapped here in this world of matter. Uh, and the goal of existence is to, to allow the spark within us to escape our bodily entrapment. The, uh, and the, uh, a person can do that when they figure out that they really are a spark within how they got into the side of them and how they can get out of here. Mm -hmm. um, Christ is the one who reveals the knowledge. These Gnostic groups, in order to explain how it happened, come up with a large set of myths uh, that are describing how the world came into, how the divine realm came into existence. How, how you know, originally there's like one divine being, but, they, but there, it has emanations that come off of them and then they become their own divine beings. And you have a bunch of divine beings and, and this world is a catastrophe because it's mm. created by, by an evil divine being and not by the God of, you know, not the, the good God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is actually an evil divinity or, a, or an ignorant divinity. And so all these myths, the different groups, these different Gnostic groups have different myths. And they have uh, different numbers of gods and they have different understandings of things. And so that's the debate you're referring to mm. is that you've got this wide range of things. And so Gnosticism today tends to get used as this umbrella term for a lot of these groups. But some scholars think the umbrella is too big to do any good. <laughs> I mean, a big umbrella is nice, but if, if it's a city block, you can't hold it up. <laughs> right. It's not going to do you any good. Right. And so get rid of the umbrella. And so, um, and other scholars say, no, what we need to do is we're going to pick like one of these groups that is really like hardcore, exactly what I'm talking about. That's the group we'll call Gnostic and we'll call other things, these other groups other things. Hmm. Or so, so there's a lot of debates about that. But there's not much debate about the fact that you have these groups that emphasize uh, the importance of knowledge for salvation and that mm -hmm. they involve these mythologies. 
Mm. Now, when you talk about how they believe there was the the spark, I think you said there was a spark inside of some people. Did they believe that like everybody had that spark and that everybody had forgotten it and the people who received the knowledge would be the ones who awakened? Or was it only some people had that divine spark? So different groups, different Gnostic groups had different views about this as, as with most things. Shocker. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, that's a shock. Yeah. The one, the, uh, one of the, the more, more important Christian Gnostic groups thought that there are three kinds of human beings. There are some, uh, there are some human beings who are just pure animal. There's nothing inside. Um, like my next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> we all have, we all have, this. There, ain't, there ain't anything there. <laughs> it's like, there, there, there are other, there are other, um, there are other people who don't have a spark inside, but they have, they have faith and they do good works. And when they die, they will be given some modicum of an app, a good, a good afterlife. But there are other people who have the spark within and the spark, those who have the spark within are the Gnostics, the one who have the capability of knowing. And so being able to learn the truth isn't just a matter of smarts. It's a matter, it's really kind of like a predestination idea. The idea that, you know, you even got the spirit or you don't. You got the spark or you don't. Yeah. And those people are the ones who can come to the truth. And they're, that's why these are secret teachings, because the teachings are for those who are capable of understanding them. Mm -hmm. And so if you object to these teachings... Uh, it's because you don't understand that, which means you don't have a spark within, mm. which means there's no way to argue with these people. Mm. Because if you disagree with them, you, you're not Gnostic. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. So then those people were not able to obtain salvation then? Not point. ultimate salvation, but they could okay. have faith in good works. And so, okay. so in other words, regular church folk, Christian church folk, mm -hmm. they'd be okay in the afterlife. They'd have a good afterlife. Uh, but for, for this one group, for this one group of, of Gnostics, but other people are just destroyed. Like, you know, you squat that, you swatted that mosquito yesterday and the mosquito, <laughs> didn't have an afterlife. It's just dead. Right, you it's, know? Just gone. So, it's like my next door neighbor. <laughs> swatted, that's it. Sorry. That's it. <laughs> that's the end. So let's talk about a little bit about the, uh, the, the scriptures. I want to ask you in a moment about the Gnostic text, but before we get there, a little bit about the Bible that, that we have again, like you probably, I was taught that the you know, the Protestant Bible is the authoritative word of God, you know, it's infallible, it's inerrant, all these things. And then my journey of discovery, like you had said earlier, like I discovered that the Bible wasn't just dropped out of the clouds, it didn't just come from the hand of God, but it went through this very complicated process of a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions, power, politics, all the different things. So can you maybe give us like a, I'm wondering like a bird's eye view of how exactly the Protestant Bible that we have came to be maybe some things about the process that like the average listener who grew up like you and I did maybe wouldn't fully yeah, grasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can do that. Yeah. You know, really the, the book lost Christianities started mm -hmm. out being a book about how we got the canon of scripture. That's how it kind of started. That's, that was my idea. But then I thought, no, I got to tell the story about all these Christianities <laughs> right. because the reason we have the new Testament we have is precisely because of these battles over the, mm -hmm. what would be true Christianity. And so, um, so in the first century, so say the first 70 or 90 years after Jesus' death, there were obviously most people couldn't read or write, but some could, and um, Christ, some Christians could, and Christians wrote books. I mean, they wrote, you know, we have the New Testament has 27 books in it, but there were other books written by Christians at the time. And um, because Christianity was being spread throughout the Roman world, there, there wasn't, there's no mass communication. There's no way really to, like... There, 
I mean, if you've got some views that have developed in the city of Ephesus and somebody's off in Rome, they're probably developing different views and you'll never even communicate with them, you know, or you, you might, some visitor might come from Antioch and say, oh my God, that's not what we think, you know, but so people in these different places are writing stuff and they're hearing stories about Jesus, they're writing accounts of Jesus and they're writing uh, books telling people how to behave and if they're going to be a Christian and what it means to be a Christian and you know, how do you become, I mean, and they all have the, all these different views. So at first, that was okay because nobody knew that they have all these books out there. They just got the ones in their community. You know, they live in Antioch. Well, these are the books. And so, but as, as Christianity grows, crap, people are traveling and the books will be moved around. And you start realizing, wait a second, <laughs> this is very different. And so it comes to a point where Christians, uh, I mean, Christians from the beginning thought that the, the Jewish Bible was their Bible. You know, the, they had a Bible to start with. They had the, however they define the Jewish Bible, but they started thinking, you know, there are these, these different views of things and we need authorities for knowing what the right thing is because you just can't pick something. You got to have an authority. And these books then started appearing that had the names of apostles on them because the the disciples of Jesus and Paul uh, who later converted, those would be the authorities. And so you start getting all these gospels, for example, and you get a gospel, you get a gospel about uh, of Jesus saying by written, allegedly written by Thomas um, or uh, his his brother Thomas actually, uh, and a, a gospel about Jesus as a young boy also by Thomas, mm. and a, a gospel by Philip, and a gospel by James Jesus' brother, and a gospel. By, I mean, you start going. You, know, you got a gospel of Peter. You got a gospel of Mary. You get the, these gospels, and people are saying, "Well, look, these are all saying different things." What are we? <laughs> and so, um, and so people had to decide what the authorities were going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and in different parts of the church, there would be different authorities. Um, as the church grew and uh, it, it began to realize it had to kind of, it had to more or less centralize, it had to centralize. It had to be, it couldn't be 5,000 things. It had to be a thing. And, um, and so unlike, unlike all the other religions in the ancient world, uh, including Judaism, Christianity developed the idea that it was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, so there were other religions, I mean, like people worship Zeus everywhere in the empire. But there was no kind of official Zeus worship anywhere. The worship of Zeus in Ephesus was very different from the worship of, Jew, of Zeus in Rome. It was mm -hmm. different from Alexandria. So, and they didn't try to coordinate it because they had no reason to. Mm -hmm. But the Christians insisted that you had to believe the right things or you won't be saved. Nobody, there, was, there were no religions that saw, thought that before Christianity. Mm -hmm. It was never about belief. But with Christianity... It's about believing that Christ is the son of God, that he was raised from the dead and that, you know, you have these beliefs yeah. and you've got to get the right ones. So people then had arguments about which which books were the inspired scriptures. Mm -hmm. And um, while they were having those arguments, they were arguing about what the right things to believe are. And different groups had more power than others. And eventually one of the groups took over and they're the ones who ended up deciding. So just quickly on in terms of a timeline, the first. Um, the first instance that we have anybody who lists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four Gospels is a church father named Irenaeus, who's writing in the year 185. So it's 100 years mm, yeah. after these things were in circulation. Mm. And even then, you know, there are lots of other people who disagreed with him. Uh, the first time anyone came up with our list of 27 books, mm -hmm. the first time on record, uh, is, is in the writings of a church father named Athanasius, the mm. Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, is a letter that he wrote to his churches under his jurisdiction in the year 367. 
Wow. That's the first time <laughs> anybody listened to our books. <laughs> the books that we, because before that there were lists, but sometimes they leave things off and they add things in. And no, no, these are yeah. the 27. Mm. And even then it wasn't decided, but pretty soon is, is, there never was, by the way, there never was a church council that voted on it. Mm. Um, some people mm. think it was decided at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. No, they didn't even talk about it there. Mm. Um, uh, and it wasn't decided in any kind of worldwide church council. The first time the worldwide council decide, talked about which books were definitely scripture was in the 16th century. Wow. <laughs> the Council of Trent. <laughs> yeah. That's not at all what I was taught. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what we were taught. No, not even so a little bit. It's in the history books. I can tell you that's, I'm not making this one up. <laughs> yeah. So then how then, how did like, you think of the gospel of Thomas, you mentioned that, right. And there's yeah. other, there's other, that's not really a Gnostic text, so to speak, but uh, some say it is, but I don't know what you think, but like, what about like a text like that, even ones that aren't like super far out there, because there are some Gnostic texts that are really crazy, like you had said, but like, what, what made that like those books unacceptable to be included in, in the canon? Like why were those demonized, so to speak? So when the um, when the group that became Orthodox mm -hmm. was making its decision, so I in my writings I probably do this in Lost Christianities. I, I call the group that became later became the the right belief. I call them proto Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So Orthodoxy isn't like the only thing in town now, but it's like there's a group that believes it and holds to it. Mm -hmm. The proto Orthodox when they were deciding which books are going to be in, you know, is it going to be give me the Gospel of John? How about the Gospel of Thomas? How about Peter? You know, they're, they're deciding. They basically they don't ever articulate it quite like this, but basically they've got four criteria they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And when you see their discussions, it's pretty clear. These are the four things that matter to them. A book had to be old um, by their standards. It, it had to be ancient. It couldn't be some, even if somebody wrote a really good gospel last week. I mean, you know, even, even Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. No, I'm sorry. It's not going to get in. It's not going to be there. It's got to be, it's got to be, so it's got to be go all the way back. Yeah. Um, it has to be written by, it has to be apostolically uh, authorized. So it has mm -hmm. to be written by one of Jesus' own apostles or by somebody commissioned by one of Jesus' apostles. Mm -hmm. So Matthew and John, they're disciples, they're in. Mark is Peter's buddy, Luke is Paul's buddy, they're in. And so so they've got to be written by apostles. So they got to be ancient, they got to be apostolic. They, they have to be, um, scholars would call it Catholic not in the sense of Roman Catholic, but the term Catholic means universal. That, what I mean by that is that they get used everywhere in Orthodox Christianity. So they're not just a local favorite. Mm -hmm. They've got to have widespread approbation. And fourth, and I think most importantly, they've got to be Orthodox. They've got to toe the theological line. And if they're teaching things that we don't agree with, then it's obviously it's not scripture. Right. And that was actually a criterion for deciding whether an apostle wrote it. Mm. If, if a book disagrees with my theology then obviously it was not written by an apostle and so a book like the gospel of peter was excluded because peter could not have written this that gets a little hairy then for the like the second one you talked about it being written by an apostle with like the letters some of the letters attributed to paul right because yeah. like they're i mean for a while i guess it was assumed that they were written by paul but now correct me if i'm wrong but i think a lot of more serious scholars would say like first and second Timothy, for instance, is probably not written by him, even though it has his name on it. Yeah. So I, uh, a later book, I, I deal with that a little bit in lost Christianity. A later book I wrote was called forged. Mm -hmm. And it's about, it's about that phenomenon about people writing books, uh, 
well, it's mainly about early Christian books, writing books, claiming to be Peter when you're not Peter. Right. <laughs> you write a gospel and claim to be Peter, you're not Peter. And so what I argue my book actually is contrary to what a lot of people, a lot of people think. A lot of people think that that was an acceptable practice in the ancient world and there weren't copyright laws, you know, and it wasn't illegal. And so people, they have no problem with doing that. And uh, my, like if my I went and wrote a book, I said, I'm Bart Ehrman and I'm writing this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, people say, oh, look, there's no copyright. So if you want to claim to be Paul, that's fine. Right. If you're right. saying that you represent Paul's views, that's okay. Yeah, well, what about somebody else who represents the opposite views and writes a book claiming to be Paul? You know, mm. do they think that's all right? Right. right. Uh, so in my book, I actually, I went through, I wrote a very big book uh, mm. about this, a scholarly book that I'm not recommending to anybody that's over <laughs> 600 pages, where I, where, I, uh, where I show that actually in the ancient world, it was not that way. They obviously didn't call these things forgeries because they weren't speaking in English, <laughs> but the, the Greek words they used for these words were pretty nasty. They, they call books like that, um, they call lies, uh, pseudo, mm. or, uh, or they call them, um, yeah, well, uh, bastards. Mm. With, with the connotation of bastard, illegitimate children with yeah. the negative connotation because they're not mm. really, they don't really belong to the beloved parent. Yeah. And so, so they said nasty things and, and nobody approved of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, but you get that in the New Testament is the issue. Yeah. Um, so you get six letters of Paul that scholars have long thought probably six of the 13 probably mm. were not written by Paul. Uh, first and second Timothy, as you mentioned, be among, but but all other books in the New Testament, first and second Peter, almost certainly they weren't written by Peter. And mm -hmm. so my book tries to sh tries to show that. So it was a it was a phenomenon, not just among the Gnostics, and not, but also among the proto-Orthodox. Yeah, I think that's I mean, that was a huge thing for me, because once I realized that, like a lot of the things that I thought Paul said, you know, that were so important. Once I realized that, oh, maybe Paul didn't say it, but maybe even one of his followers did, but maybe they were trying to you know, lessen some of this stuff that Paul has said about like the inclusivity of, you know, God's kingdom and things like that. Like maybe it just, it just changed everything for me. Once I realized that Paul didn't necessarily say all these things about women, all these things about. Well, no, it's you know, a big deal. I mean, yeah. with the women thing, I mean, the, the idea that women have to be silent and be submissive to their husbands and don't ask at home, don't talk in church. Right. That's first Timothy, which Paul didn't write. <laughs> yeah, right. The change changes the game. So last question for you. Um, A lot of our listeners came out of the same, uh, background as we did. Uh, many have commented um, on your on your work and have talked about how it's like a rabbit hole of information and it can just feel very uh, overwhelming. I think once you realize how kind of narrow of a view you were given of church history and Christianity and the Bible, things like that. So my question is, what advice do you have for the person out there who really wants to dig into this stuff? They have a whole bunch of sources kind of at their fingertips, but don't really know exactly where to start. What's your advice for that person? Um, is this person I'm uh, thinking of now, is this somebody who's still uh, a person of faith or is this somebody who's left the faith or is it both? Um, they, yeah, I would say they're still in the faith, like our listeners. So there are a lot of them yeah. are still, they're hanging on to their faith. Um, yeah. They're not yeah. sure what they believe, but they realize yeah. that I was handed something that's not really true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, well, I have a lot of advice because I've thought about this for a long time. But one, one thing I'd say is um, pe people, people should follow the truth wherever it leads them. Hmm. And you should not be afraid of the truth. I mean, when I was doing this, when I was going through this transition, it was a very long, painful transition. It was, for me, it was emotionally very painful uh, because my whole life was wrapped up in my faith and um, my relationships and my 
ideas and my thoughts and my ideology, my worldview is all like, is all like wrapped up. And so like to give, to leave is like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? Yeah. Um, and so, but my, but I was comforted by a thought that, um, uh, I, I don't know if it goes back to Augustine, but Augustine says it at some point that, that if something is true, it comes from God. Yeah. I mean, all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. And so like, if, if you believe something that's true, you're not opposing God here <laughs> because it's true. Right. And so the thing is to search for the truth. Mm. Um, but I would say that you shouldn't, uh, that I don't think anybody, I'll put it like this. You know, I teach a class on the New Testament and I teach this kind of stuff in my New Testament class. And most of my students are church people, grew up in the conservative churches in the South. And so, but like, I do not want them to like, dump their faith after like a semester hearing some guy talk and this is a big issue you know like if i can persuade you by talking for a semester i mean you you know you aren't thinking very much you need to think about this don't don't go too easily because that's not good either and so um i i really suggest that people uh, dig into it and look at both sides of every issue and consider the evidence and see see what seems to be the most persuasive Um, it's really difficult now. In, in some ways, the internet has made it far more difficult because, of course, anybody can say anything on the internet. And so anybody seems to be an expert. Mm-hmm. And so how do you know? Like, how do you know? I mean, you know, I have this problem with all sorts of areas that I'm not an expert in. I want to become an expert. In, I want to learn about something. But how, who do I trust? Right. And, um, you know, and so could you read all sorts of stuff? And so, um, you know, basically what I, I think is that you the value of printed books with reputable publishers mm-hmm. uh, is that the books get vetted by experts, mm-hmm. unlike things you find on the internet. Yeah. Um, and so being vetted by an expert is a really important thing. And so like, if I'm looking for some idea about the civil war, or if I'm looking about some idea about Julius Caesar, or if I'm mm-hmm. looking for, you know, I really, I really do kind of trust books that are published by reputable presses, not, not, you know, personally published, but like by Oxford Press, you know, by mm-hmm. Yale University, I do, you know, because I know they've done their due diligence. Mm-hmm. When it comes to New Testament, or early Christianity stuff, there are some authors that I absolutely, you know, even ones I disagree with, but they absolutely are learned scholars and mm-hmm. they ought to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but I know it's hard, you know, unless you've got an expert, you can ask, can I trust this person? <laughs> you know, right. yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> you know, yeah. something I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> so, um, in my books, in my you mentioned my textbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of each chapter of my textbook, I have a list of books that are on that topic, mm-hmm. and I don't always pick books that agree with me. But it's a, it's an annotated list. So if somebody's interested in the historical Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, I give a list of books by reputable scholars. Some I nobody that you know. I don't, I don't put fundamentalists on there, but I do sometimes put evangelical scholars who are very bright and have views different from mine. But that way, you know, but you got to have some reputable source to tell you what to read, I think. Yeah, I think that's wise advice, because I think taking it to Google, like to your point, just it just brings up so much stuff and you don't know. That's where the rabbit hole, I think, really begins, because it's like, oh, my goodness, there's so many things that I just got bombarded with. Where do I go? So I think well, to your you point, I, mean? I think starting with a, with a book with a reputable publishing house yeah. is a, a wise thing. You know, the, the problem really is most obviously springs at the two extremes within the research into early Christianity. On the one hand, are fundamentalists who just, 
you know, they'll read some fundamentalist website that'll just be using apologetics that is actually, you know, like, this is not a smart argument. I'm sorry, this is not a smart <laughs> argument. And if you don't know, if you don't know enough, you just wouldn't realize any more than I would realize that, a, you know, somebody saying something about quantum physics isn't a smart argument. How would I know? I don't know. <laughs> but the other end are the mythicists. I don't know if you all talk about the mythicists on your podcast. But, not too much. Yeah. You know, there's this group of, there's a group of people that are very loud on the internet claiming that Jesus never existed. Mm. So they're called mythicists because they think Jesus himself is a myth. There never was a man, Jesus. And, oh, my God, do they have an Internet presence? And, you know, and they convince people because people just don't know enough. Yeah. I mean, how could they know enough? Yeah. You know, but but you get somebody who claims to be an expert and he starts talking about the Egyptian religion and he starts talking about this God and that God. Fancy and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, Mithras. You mean the God Mithras was born on December 25th and that his mother was a virgin and that he had wise men visiting him and that, you know, he's like, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Of course you didn't know. It's not true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think I read one of those books a while back. I forget the name of it, but I, when I was reading, I was like, this doesn't sound, this doesn't sound very reputable. I forget the name of what the book was. Uh, I can't well, I, you, I wrote, I wrote a book called did Jesus exist because yes. I got fed up with these mythicists. Right. Oh my God. So these, the these are straight. very, very liberal people who yeah. are all over me because like, you know, they thought I was their friend. <laughs> now I'm saying Jesus exists. <laughs> How dare you <laughs> throw them out. The heretic. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Barney, this has been amazing, but uh, we're just about out of time. I know you got to get on with your day. I got to clock back in from work pretty soon, but thank you again for taking the time to join me and uh, thank yep. you for your work. It's made a in, in big impact on my thinking. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. You're welcome. And real quick, uh, where's the best place for people to go to connect with your work? I know you've got a blog. You might want to mention that here. I do want to mention it. So I have a, so if you're interested in this kind of stuff, anything really, anything related to the New Testament or early Christianity for 400 years, I have a blog. Mm -hmm. It's called the Bart Ehrman blog. Just look it up. E-H-R-M-A-N, the Bart Ehrman blog. I post five times a week, 1,200 to 1,400 words a day, five times a week. I've done it for nine years every week. And it, people ask me questions. I answer every question I get. Uh, I do this as a way to raise money for charity. Uh, there's a small membership fee. If, if, pe if people can't afford the membership fee, I'll, you know, I'll give them a free membership. But, but there, so um, there's a membership fee. But if you go to the blog, you'll see, uh, you'll see how it works. And uh, the goal of this is to uh, raise money for, uh, for people in need, especially the hunger. Uh, issues dealing with hunger and homelessness. It's really good. I mean, I, I'm on that blog and uh, there's a, is a wealth of information. So very good stuff. Well, Bar, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for taking time. Okay. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right.
Work. <laughs>